All right, guys, welcome back to the Investor Mindset Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Pesavento. And to today's guest, I have Devin Elder in the studio. How are you doing today, Devin? Hey, Stephen, doing great. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm excited to have you. And as you guys may know, Devin Elder is a real estate entrepreneur and operator whose company is, manages all aspects of acquisitions, repositioning, and sale of single family and multifamily properties in Central Texas. They have successfully completed over 200 real estate renovation projects since 2012, and they currently have ownership interests in over 1,400 units across Central Texas. So we're going to be diving into some stuff about syndication, multifamily, and making the transition from single family into commercial multifamily. So you guys are definitely going to uh, enjoy today's episode. Uh, you ready to dive into things, Devin? Absolutely. This is the Investor Mindset Podcast, and I'm Stephen Pesavento. For as long as I can remember, I've been obsessed with understanding how we can think better, how we can be better, and how we can do better. And each episode, we explore lessons on motivation and mindset from the most successful real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the nation. Investors, have you grabbed your copy of the Passive Investor Playbook yet? If you haven't, I recommend you go pick up the ultimate guide to passive real estate investing at theinvestormindset.com slash passive. You can grab that in the show notes right down below as we've interviewed tons of the top experts and brought together all of the knowledge that we have on passive investing so that you can lay a foundation for yourself to make sure you're making the right decisions in your investing career. And you can grab that guide at theinvestormindset.com slash passive. I hope you'll take advantage of it. Let's get back to it. All right. So looking back at earlier in your life, tell me what events or influences from your childhood specifically influenced or shaped who you are today? You know, it's, that's an interesting question. Um, one that I don't get into a whole lot, but I was actually homeschooled until sixth grade. And I, looking back, I can see that the freedom and autonomy that I had as a child until I was about 11 really left a mark on me. And I, I never recovered. You know, I went to school at sixth grade and it was torture. Uh, and even through getting my bachelor's degree, you know, in my, in my twenties, um, never, never really enjoyed it. I didn't enjoy people telling me what to do. And so I think that set the tone early for me in my life that I, that I wanted kind of freedom was my highest value that I was pursuing. And as an adult, I discovered the only way I could achieve that was by being an entrepreneur. I think that set the tone pretty early on. And, um, you know, I think that really kind of set me in my in my direction. I mean, who would have thought, right, that when you're thinking about homeschooling your kids, that as a result, you're going to end up realizing that you're building this habit of kind of being on your own, doing your own thing, learning on your own, growing on your own, and how that really does set you up perfectly for entrepreneurship. Yeah, that's right. So I had a, a hiatus all those years of school. Uh, and then I had some time, obviously, in the corporate world. And that all felt to me like, um, you know, it just wasn't a fit, wasn't wasn't uh, a good fit for my personality type, I guess. Yeah, it makes sense. And everyone's got to figure out what is right for them. You know, some people are better in that kind of structure environment. Some people are better on their own. I know I can definitely relate to you on that. So what I'm really curious about, you know, as a multifamily operator, being out there acquiring properties, I see new uh, investments coming off your list, you know, every couple months here. So what I'm really curious about is 
from an underwriting perspective, what's unique today versus 12 months ago when you were underwriting some of these commercial properties? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the big, the big elephant in the room is interest rates. I mean, you know, we're, we're, as we're recording this, we're in the process of closing a property. When this publishes, we'll have closed it. But um, it was a deal, 250 unit property in San Antonio that we looked at a year ago. I mean, I toured it and, and actually I'm the owner's a friend of mine. So I'm very familiar with the asset, but, you know, we looked at it a year ago and it just, it didn't pencil, you know, and then, and then this year we looked at it, we're actually buying it because the rates have moved dramatically, you know, since then. And that's had a huge impact. You know, if you're able to get five years interest only on a non-recourse loan and it's a sub 3% interest rate, that changes things, you know? So that's, that's the big one. The other thing I think is being uh, maybe a little more conservative on, at least in your underwriting. Now, in reality, when you, when you get in there and you start doing these, um, these unit improvements, you know, you're going to want to push rents as much as you can, but at least on the underwriting to kind of tamp down on what you think you can get. If you're spending three, four, $5,000 on, you know, the way we look at it, the way a lot of operators look at it is what's the ROI on our interior renovation, right? If we're going to go in and we got an 800 square foot uh, apartment, we're going to put a new flooring paint fixtures, you know, maybe some kind of accent like a backsplash or, or new appliances, whatever the thing is, we're going to spend three, four, $5,000, what is the premium we think we can get? Is it 50, 100, 150? And what's the ROI, right? On that, let's say we spend $5,000 on the unit. What's our delta on our rent premium and what's the ROI? And, you know, we want that to be north of 20%. The higher, the better, obviously. But in our underwriting is kind of tamping down expectations on what we think we can get there, right? And that way, hopefully we're pleasantly surprised if the if the market is actually can reward us a little better for, for our efforts. And so I think that's important to be able to underwrite that. Another big component of underwriting, at least as we're talking right now, is the COVID escrow. So the lenders, whether, you know, we've refinanced some properties and we've bought some properties, mm-hmm. they want to see like nine to 12 months mm-hmm. of payments escrowed up front. So we're talking half a million, a million dollars of escrow that we didn't have to do this time last year. So there's all, I tell people there's always headwinds, and there's always tailwinds and they all, ch- they change. So, you know, we've got some headwinds in terms of a COVID escrow right now, and we've got some tailwinds with interest rates. And, and so that'll continue to change, but that's where we're at right now as we're talking. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, with interest rates so low, uh, it obviously creates an opportunity that, that makes it much cheaper to be able to purchase and hold these properties. And so talk to me a little bit about what goes into the thought process when making this shift. What are you thinking about when you came to the realization or the decision that, hey, we're going to make some adjustments to our underwriting? I think it's a, I, I liken it to surfing and not that I'm a big surfer, but th- you know, people want a stable situation that doesn't change. We just kind of inherently want that security. I don't think that exists. I mean, we're, we're just constantly adjusting on sometimes a daily basis to what's going on with rates, what's going on with our offers on properties, what's going on with our management. And so it's just constantly adjusting uh, the inputs. I developed an underwriting model that, um, you know, I've probably like you have probably seen 50 different underwriting models with varying degrees of complexity. We tend to use a fairly straightforward one underwriting model. Now, when we're looking at properties that we can just go in and make, I mean, literally we might adjust underwriting a hundred times, right. To see, Hey, what is, what is a five basis point change in the rate due to our five-year projection? What is, if I can get rents up, you know, 50 versus $60 on, 
on 20% of the units, what does that do? So we're constantly making adjustments um, throughout the underwriting process. And what we do is we just keep it in a Google doc and the team's got access to it and we can, we can make constant adjustments throughout the whole process. I think the important thing is to get in on a property that you can buy right, lock in a good interest rate and leave yourself the appropriate capital cushion. Um, and it's kind of a Goldilocks deal. You, you know, you don't, you can't over raise too much and have millions of dollars in the bank that you have to pay a preferred return on, but you can't go in too skinny on the deal either and, and end up, um, you know, end up with not enough cash to operate. I think people get in trouble uh, a lot being undercapitalized on projects. So just to answer your question, it's, it's, it's surfing and it's just constant adjustment on a, you know, sometimes a daily or weekly basis. And that's just part of the game that I think uh, I've learned to embrace over the years. Yeah. It's one of those things that people forget that one of the quickest and easiest ways to lose money in real estate is not to have enough money to pay those payments or cover any kind of expenses that come up that are unexpected. So it's super important to have more than enough money that you need, but you don't want to have too much because then you're going to dilute the overall return uh, on the property. So if a passive investor is going to be taking a look at a deal that an operator is putting out, what how can they know that they've taken into account some of these changes in the market? Some of the things that you're talking about related to interest rates and unit improvement, ROI metrics, and kind of the escrow numbers for COVID. How can somebody be able to, you know, intelligently know, Hey, this has been taken into account. Yeah. I would ask if I'm a passive investor, I would ask a couple of things around reserves. And I think off the top of my head, I think it's three buckets. Usually the lender has a required reserve a lot of times monthly. So we kind of budget $300 a door per year that the lender's going to say, probably going to make us escrow with them. And that's for longer term capital improvements. So that's one bucket. The second bucket that's, that's kind of, you know, topical here's the escrow. That's a big one. So how is the sponsor handling that escrow reserve for COVID? And then the third bucket is the is just general property reserves now in in this climate uh, uh i could see an operator reducing their general reserve because they have this huge COVID escrow that hopefully they're going to get back in six or nine months so those are kind of the three escrow buckets i look at lender required ongoing reserves COVID escrow reserves and just operating reserves but the thing that i really encourage people to look at too is sponsor liquidity because i think it's easy today it's easier than it's ever been to put together a team, put together capital and go close a deal. Um, maybe you go close a $10 million deal by putting together the team. It's actually fairly straightforward to do that. I think it's exceptionally important that if you're passively investing, that you understand the sponsors got liquidity to smooth anything out. For example, you might need a hundred or $200,000 to pay a contractor to get something done before you can get your money back from the bank. And I've seen operators get tripped up over a $50,000 gap in cash. And that that's unacceptable, right? If you're, if you're going out and you're leading a deal that is a multi-million dollar deal as a sponsor, you need to have some liquidity to be able to float that without going back to your investors hat in hand over 50 or a hundred thousand dollar kind of bridge um, cash situation. And I, you know, I get a little passionate about it because I'm a passive investor in some of those deals where I've been the bridge on that. And, and I, the sponsor absolutely should have been able to cover that. And so I think that's important to ask if you're passively investing is, is the sponsor liquid? You know, if the, if the, if there's a short-term liquidity requirement on a project, can the sponsor take care of it without going back and, and bugging their investors for it? 
Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And that's one of the things that it's so important to be investing with people who are experienced and have the capital themselves to be able to do these deals on their own without necessarily needing to raise all of the money. Now, they may choose to raise majority of the money so that they can have that liquidity. But it's one of those things that, you know, it, it it's an easier game to get in now than it ever has been to get in the multifamily right. space. And it's one of the reasons we only invest with people who have extensive track records. But, you know, when it comes to sponsor liquidity, there's nothing worse than having a capital call over something ridiculous uh, like a 50 or $100,000 expense that's going to come up. You, we, we should be able to anticipate some of those types of things. How does, a, how does a passive investor in your eyes confirm that the sponsor has that liquidity? Great question. I, if I'm a passive investor, I would want to know, have you ever done a capital call on a deal? And I want to hear that a sponsor has not done a capital call. Because bumps in the road on a construction project or on a multifamily, they're going to be inevitable. You know, a sponsor needs to be able to take those punches and roll with it. And the passive investor, in my opinion, needs to be completely passive in the deal. That's what they signed up for. So I would ask if, if sponsors ever had a capital call. Um, and if they have, I want to I want to know more. And then I want to just ask about their their personal financial situation. What comes up if there's a hundred thousand dollar bump in the road on this deal? What's the game plan there? Now I tend to invest as a passive investor because I'm an LP in a lot of deals um, really kind of relationship first. I mean, it's people that I know or people that have invested with me or people I've built a relationship with over a long time to where, you know, I may not ask to see, Hey, show me, show me your latest bank statement because of the relationship, but I've certainly spent years building that relationship first. And if I'm starting out building a relationship, I'll probably start with, with the question of, have you ever done a capital call or what's the game plan? If there's a, a hundred K bump in the road. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I think it's one of those things where when you're investing 50,000 a deal, it's difficult to justify asking for a balance sheet or a bunch of information to verify. If there is a lack of trust at that point, it kind of makes sense that you would probably want to go a different route of not investing, or maybe you have to kind of do some self-assessment about where that lack of certainty internally is coming from and whether you should be investing at all. Now, of course, nobody wants to lose the 50,000. Um, but we, we see it very differently when we're investing with more institutional investors. People are putting in 500000 or a million dollars. It's typical for them to ask for a balance sheet to go deeper into the financials because from their experience, they're risking a lot more, a larger percentage of the deal. And that's one of the directions that if you have that kind of equity and you're going to be investing it, you can ask that. But usually it's it's with a polite no uh, when you're investing a very small amount. So keep that in mind when you're a passive investor and you're looking at doing due diligence on some know kind of what your slice of the pie is and what's relevant and and how much you can really ask when you're kind of going down that path. So, you know, what I'm curious about, Devin, is we're, when we're looking at uh, acquisitions, um, we talked a little bit about this offline about what's kind of changed in the market today, but what are you seeing related to where assets are trading today? And, you know, talk to me a little bit about what's different. Well, I'm constantly scratching my head on going in cap rates or, or, or asking price cap rates because they keep going down, you know? Um, and what I've also, so I'm constantly <laughs> kind of befuddled by that. Like, where is this just going to keep, where we're going to continue to see cap rate compression? It's just kind of wild. Uh, and then also seeing cap rate, I guess, similarities across asset vintages, you know, where you're seeing a, a 70s vintage asset, 
much closer in cap rate on, you know, a late eighties, you know, early seventies versus late eighties. And these are like really different buildings in terms of construction and then age of the building and maybe even the area. And you're seeing the cap rates get closer and closer together. And so that we've kind of tended um, recently to, to skew towards bigger, newer projects. It's like, Hey, if we're going to pay a, a lower cap rate for this thing, um, going in, then let's get, let's get something nicer and newer, uh, because there's just going to be less headaches and it's going to be a more stable project for everybody involved. And if, if, if you have similar cap rates, I think that's the, that's the move. So that's what we've seen. It's, it's kind of interesting. And at the same time, you know, you've, you've seen multifamily hold up exceptionally well nationally through COVID and that that's, that's huge. I mean, we can't say the same for office and or plenty of other businesses that um, have just been hammered in 2020. And so I think multifamily continues to be attractive for the reason that it's always been attractive. It's a, it's a fundamental essential service that everybody's got to purchase. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of people from other asset classes moving capital into multifamily. That's probably part of the reason that that prices continue to rise, cap rate compression continues to happen, as well as when interest rates go down, for all the listeners who don't understand this, when interest rates go down, it actually makes it more affordable to purchase that property with the leverage in place. And so therefore, it uh, in turn, it almost makes that property more valuable. And so that's one of the things we think about, well, if we can buy something at a with a lower interest rate, but we can still have the buffer above that interest rate, that is really where the the profit is made. And so what else are you doing differently today from an operation standpoint, as you're out there operating your assets and thinking about uh, making purchases to operate new assets? What are you doing today that's different from before? Because a lot of people have been learning for the last year or two, or they've been passively investing in other deals. And I think it's really important for people to be thinking about, well, what's changed and what hasn't? Because a lot of people have been thinking, well, huge deals are going to be coming down the pipeline and maybe they are, but maybe they're not. Because I've been in this space only since about 2014 or 2015. And since then, people have been saying, we're going to be heading into the biggest crash in the next 12 to 18 months. So it's been years and years of people saying that everything's going to change and it very well might be, but talk to me a little bit about what you're doing differently moving forward so that our investors can start thinking that same way. Yeah, absolutely. So just a quick comment on, on, um, interest rates. And unfortunately I think this is such a macro thing that I, I try not to spend too much time thinking about it, but interest rates are so low and there's been so much quantitative easing that I, I don't know that there's a way out of it, right? I don't know that there's a way that the globally or in the US that we get to a much, much higher interest rate environment in, in the near term at all. So, you know, if we continue to be a low interest rate environment, that's going to facilitate higher purchase prices, et cetera. That's on a macro level. On a micro level, we're operating in one market in San Antonio, Texas. And the thing that we've done recently, you know, within the last year, that's been a complete game changer for us was starting the management company. And, you know, I think like a lot of operators that are in the game long enough, you just realize there's just going to be efficiencies if we take this in-house and go vertically integrated. So I've had good third-party management company experiences. I've had terrible third-party management company experiences. But the the common denominator was that that was all a little bit outside of my control. And so I was fortunate enough to find um, the right person and build a management company around them. And now we have that all in-house and it just, uh, it gives me a much greater 
degree of comfort operating these assets, knowing that we control the whole, the whole thing from acquisition to, to operations down to, you know, uh, uh, property level staffing, and that we can kind of make decisions on a, on a weekly basis around that. So going vertically integrated um, didn't make sense a number of years ago for us, but at some point with, with a certain amount of scale, it absolutely made sense for, for us. And um, that's been, that's been awesome. I, I love it. Yeah, for the operators out there, this is a great example of once you get enough properties under your belt, once you have enough assets under management, that it actually makes a lot of sense to do uh, property management in a house, especially if we're going to be going through some type of rapid change in the market. Not only because uh, it's great to be able to be that close, to be able to pull all the different levers from an individual property level, but it also helps keep the lights on for your business because you're going to be the one who's going to be in there making all those decisions and be able to bring on staff to support that. And so you're able to pull a little bit of uh, money from the project to be able to, to support that overhead. And it's, it's a, it's the, the thing that is not the sexiest part, but it's the most important part of investing because you, you, you don't make your money on the purchase. A lot of people say that, uh, that you do, and it's important. We got to make our money there, but you really stop yourself from losing money when you operate the asset. So that's, that's definitely really important. hundred percent. I mean, the operations is so critical and it's so easy. We, a lot of people spend so much time on the underwriting, raising capital and, and everything, but closing a deal is just arriving at the starting line. I mean, there's so much work that it takes to get to the starting line. It's easy to just focus on that, but that's just the starting line of the race, man. I mean, you've got to run the race for five years on top of that. And so it's, it's, it's critical. And, and I just want to, I really want to underline that because for a lot of you investors out there, passive or active, when you're thinking about this, when you're just getting into the space, all of the education, all the focus is on how do I go and find a deal and how do I find money? Why? Because that's the biggest problem that you have before you close on the deal. But the most important part of the whole investment is actually executing the business plan. And so many people fail to do this. And I think we're actually going to be heading into a little bit of a, if the economy continues to change, I think we're going to see some of that end up playing out with the number of new operators that are going to the market that are not partnering with experienced operators that are not having other uh, experts running the day to day. They're going to be learning on your dime. And you don't want people to be learning on your dime. You want to be investing with people who have the experience, have been doing this, understand real estate, understand real estate markets. And that's exactly why you will, you want to be making those decisions when you're doing your due diligence up front before investing in, in an asset. If you're on the passive side and if you're an operator and you're new to the game, don't let that hold you back. Just find a way to bring in that expertise on your team so that the people who have 10 years of experience can tell you, well, I've dealt with this problem 20 times and this is how we solve it instead of trying to figure it out. Love it. Yep. Absolutely true. So a lot of people that listen to the show have been in the single family space. They have been flipping. Maybe they own some single family themselves, but they want to transition into multifamily. What's been the biggest challenge for you in making that transition? When I made the transition, um, a lot of it was was mindset, right? I mean, I started out my single family business with really kind of no capital. And the, the thing that helped me was that right when I started in real estate investing period, you know, I paid some money to join a club and get a mentor. 
right? Right out of the gate. And, and I think that was hugely valuable. So I got to be around people that were doing big multifamily deals way before I was ready. And, and we're talking years of, of me, you know, flipping houses and doing rentals and single family stuff and just kind of scratching and clawing a portfolio together over years, but all the while knowing that I, where I wanted to go, right? Beginning with the end in mind. And it took several years to get into multifamily, but I was fortunate in the, the from the very beginning, I got to be around people. Um, and I mean, you know, become friends with and, and truly get to know people that were going out and buying these 10 and $20 million buildings. Right. So I had a framework to get in there. And then I, it was just, it was just elbow grease for, for years until then. And, you know, my transition to multifamily was buying a six unit by myself with no partners um, that I ran every aspect of. It was kind of miserable, but that was my start. And I, I didn't want to take on any capital. Um, I just wanted to do it by myself. And then the next deal was the 75 unit where I partnered with a couple other operators that had done it before, raised some capital, did some operations, but not all of it. And then after that, I was ready to transition to 130 units that I was the sole operator on. And then from there, it was, you know, that was kind of my gradual stair step up over a period of a couple of years to where now, you know, we can go out and buy a $20 million building and we're the, the sole sponsor. But it didn't happen overnight. Right. And so it was just a gradual process, starting with me buying my own little multifamily deal just to prove it to myself. And was that necessary? Maybe not, but that's where I was at the time. And I just, you know, I, I had, did, I did not want to go out and try and raise 2 million bucks on a, on my first deal out of the gate. Yeah. And I mean, to, to put it in perspective, you've been, you were in single family for a long time. You had flipped many houses, you had a lot of experience, but you wanted to further that experience and see what was different in multifamily before you started bringing in outside capital. I think that's really smart. And for all the investors who are listening, think about going that direction. If you're trying to go the operations route, think about trying to get involved working under or with other people who are experienced that you can actually get the experience, not the experience on paper, the experience of saying, Hey, I have ownership interest in 200 units in my eyes. That's kind of bullshit. Uh, and a lot of people try to act like they've got all of these properties, but they're not really actively operating them. It's much more effective, much more valuable to go and do what you did and, you know, take the opportunity to learn before going out and doing that on your own and, and being able to learn from other people's experience. I think that's really, really smart. Yeah. I mean, it was, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting business, right? I mean, it's, I've certainly seen my share of, uh, <laughs> stories and challenges along the way. And now we tend to kind of buy bigger, cleaner properties. I don't see as much of that, but I've definitely done some war zone properties and, and had some uh, experiences along the way that I think uh, all that stuff tempers you and, and hopefully makes you a better business person. Yeah, absolutely. And and how would have you avoided some of those challenges if you were going to start again yourself? I mean, would have you done anything differently in the way that you kind of got started in your space? It's it's hard to say because, you know, these the some of the challenges that I've had, it's hard to say what impact they've had on me now and they may have created, you know, an instinct in me or sharpened me in a way that I wouldn't trade. But looking back, I think, you know, it's it's so much easier to buy a stabilized property than, than it is to buy something that you're just going to completely gut out and turn around and deal with a really tough tenant base. So that's, that's kind of one takeaway for me is that we've done some war zone properties with some big turnarounds and good returns, but I don't know that the returns were worth the, the struggle on my part. Right. So 
buying a property that's 92% occupied and, you know, a week after you close it, there's a hundred K of revenue coming in, man, it just makes life a lot easier. And I think it makes the investment more stable for everyone involved. And so that's, that's kind of what, um, and and that's kind of an obvious thing to say, Hey, buy, buy cleaner properties. Um, But I I think it's, it's uh, common for folks starting out to think that, well, the deal is just the trash property that we can buy for, for a you know high cap rate and and uh, get a low price on and could be it could be but uh, there's a reason why the cap rate's high and there's a reason why the price is low right so I think looking back um, I certainly earned my stripes on some brutal properties that we don't we don't do those kind of properties anymore um, and so but I I don't think I trade anything you know to be honest with you I don't think I trade it. Yeah, well, it's because that experience of going through the trenches is something that you you took away and you're able to apply in everything that you do. But, you know, it, it's it's one of the reasons why we so I personally have no interest of doing super heavy redevelopment where I'm managing the operations of that, because, yes, as a flipper, I've experienced that. I can only imagine what it's like on a very large, uh, large scale uh, level. Now, we have an operating partner here in Denver that that's all they do is they do heavy redevelopment and their whole business is built around clearing out properties, dealing with the tenant bases that are the most challenging. And that's their area of expertise. So as you're an operator that's listening to this, figure out what is your unique value proposition? What are you the best at? Are you construction heavy? Or are you more on the, the management and the business side? And if you're a passive investor, understand the value that comes out of somebody putting in all that time, effort, and energy into redeveloping a property and understand why there's fees and, and returns that need to come back to that operator for all the work that goes in. Yep. That's right. That's right. So this has been really phenomenal diving in and getting to know you a little bit more. Devin, where can people find out more about you or get in touch? Sure. The easiest way is on our website, djetexas.com. Uh, we've got a podcast. We've got other resources there. You can reach out and connect with, with us and the team and see our portfolio. So it's that's kind of the catch-all is uh, djetexas.com. Perfect. We'll include that in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I look forward to the next time we get to hang out. Awesome. Thanks, Stephen. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Investor Mindset Podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure to rate, review, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Head over to theinvestormindset.com to join the Insider Club, where we share tools and strategies from the top investors and entrepreneurs on how to take it to the next level. 